In my mailbox on Thursday, I received a four-page handwritten letter. It's wonderful. Uh, beautiful penmanship. It's got scripture in it. A, a, a full psalm is written out, some great quotes. And at the end says, P.S., I hope this might fill the description you gave of good mail. I don't know if you were here last week, uh, but somebody listened to the sermon and knew my affection for good mail, and they supplied me with it this week. So uh, I appreciated that very, very much. Um, just a little review from last week. We started a sermon series on the book of First Peter. And just to remind you of the book's context, it's about 63 A.D., The Apostle Peter is in the city of Rome, and he writes a letter of encouragement and instruction to the churches in Asia Minor, mostly northern Asia Minor. So what is today northern and western Turkey? You might have a map up here uh, that you could take a look at, or you could flip to the back. So yeah, there's a map. So those churches in, in Cappadocia and Pontus and Galatia and Bithynia and Asia, that's who Peter is writing to, sort of. Uh, what is today modern northern and western Turkey. And in writing this letter, he wants these suffering believers, he wants them to understand grace. And he wants to root these churches in the grace of God. This purpose is spelled out plainly in chapter 5, verse 12, where Peter says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So I've written all this to you to describe and to nail down and to pound into your head and heart the grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's his reason for writing. And so last week in the letter's first two verses, we saw how Peter was immediately going to work in declaring how the grace of God works in the life of the Christian. And I didn't point it out to you plainly last week, but I, I really should. Uh, I really should point it out today. I, I, did you notice? how when Peter was describing their situation, when he was describing their identity, their position as elect exiles, he said to them, you are here because of the actions and the workings of the triune Godhead. That's what he said. He said, every person in the Godhead is involved in your situation. You are elect exiles, you're feeling out of place and not at home and and in enduring suffering, and that's exactly where God wants you to be. In fact, Peter explains, God predetermined by his foreknowledge to have you there. You are placed in in a region that is ruled by the Romans and surrounded by pagans, and, and you're dealing with the discomfort of all of that, and that is exactly what God the Father wants. And in addition, the Spirit... By his supernatural power, he will sanctify you there. The Holy Spirit is at work. He's he's setting you apart. He's forming you into the image of his Son. And speaking of the Son, Jesus Christ, because of his lordship and his sacrifice, he's calling you towards submission and obedience. The triune God is thoroughly involved, is thoroughly at work in the lives of these believers, and Peter wants them to know that. He, he wants them to marvel at that, and that's why he leads with it. He says to them, here's where understanding grace begins. Begins knowing that there's not a single aspect of your situation that the member of the Godhead has not met you in. And I hope you marvel at that as well. I hope you know that the entire Godhead, 
is at work in your life. Some people, they dismiss the importance of the Trinity. They say, man, the doctrine of the Trinity is so mysterious and obtuse. I don't really understand it. I can't see how thinking about the Trinity is practical at all. I can't see that it has any bearing on my life. Whoa, 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 whoa. Think, stop. This verse lays it out. Verse 2 lays it out. God the Father. I was saved when he chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. By his purpose and his plan, I am saved. God the Son. I was saved when he died for me on the cross, shedding his blood to cover my sin. By his finished work, the Son's finished work on the cross, I am saved. God the Holy Spirit. I was saved one night in the fall of 1989. I was 14 years old, and I heard the gospel, received Christ, and it all came together by the Spirit's convicting, quickening activity in my heart. I was saved. But it took all three persons of the Godhead to bring me to salvation. That's how big a mess I am. It took all the persons of the Godhead to bring me to salvation, but that's also how thoroughly loved I am by God in all of His, in all of his persons. So, Don't ever say the Trinity has no bearing on your life. It has every bearing on your life. So let's read this morning this Scripture passage together. See what 1 Peter has for us today. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1, begin in verse 3, and we'll finish in verse 9. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. May God bless the reading of his holy word. So this passage starts doxologically, which means it starts with a glory statement. Some versions start with the word praise in verse 3. Others say glory, but you probably noticed that the ESV starts with the word blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what's going on here is this. The ideas about the Godhead that I just mentioned, the ideas about the Godhead that Peter introduced in verse 2, he's carrying those ideas forward to verse 3. He's carrying them to the, to the doxology. The truth he shared about God's foreknowledge and the Spirit's work and Christ's shed blood, they are resulting in Peter to break forth in praise. But his praise isn't just sort of a vapid exuberance. His praise is deeply theological. It's consistent with the Trinitarian thinking that he's already introduced. And if it was just blessed be to God, the doxology would not really be distinctly Christian. Which is why Peter says not only God, but he says God and Father. 
And that father title, what Peter directly connects it to is the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you think through the depth of that statement, you you have to grasp the reality that the Son is God's Son, but His Son is also the Lord. And what this underscores for us is the abiding reality of the incarnation, that when the Son came, He came in subordination to the Father, So functionally, he submitted to the Father, but essentially, he was Lord and equal to the Father as a member of the triune Godhead. This is just huge, huge thinking by this fisherman from Galilee, truly inspired by the Holy Spirit. And scholars believe this doxology, it's it's a concentrated confession that was probably used throughout the early church. And what I think it teaches us is this. I think it encourages us to be distinctly Christian in the way we praise and give glory to God. So when we sing praises, which we've done this morning, we sing songs that are not generic or merely emotional, but no, we we sing songs that are richly theological. When we pray, we pray prayers that are not vapid, but we seek God as He's revealed in Scripture. When we give thanks, we give thanks in ways that recognize the fullness of who God is and what He has done, and not just sort of offer undistinct words of gratitude. But as we get into the outline this morning, what I want you to see is that Peter has arrived at praise from those first two verses. That's what I just tried to show you. But then in the next six verses, what those are going to do, those are going to flow out of this praise. And what the praise is focused on is the salvation that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. This is a passage that outlines salvation. Salvation past, salvation future, and salvation present. Which that's basically the outline in front of you. What has happened, what will happen, and then what is happening now. So the point one there in your outline. What has happened? Second half of verse three, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now think about this. This is not just a statement of what Christ did on the cross, but it's a summary statement of everything God was doing from the time of the fall all the way to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. There's 6,000 years of history wrapped up in this statement. This is God's redemptive activity in a nutshell. And what he was working on, what he was doing, what he was accomplishing was our deliverance from sin and death. The one thing that we could not achieve or earn or deserve or accomplish, the one thing we could not give to ourselves was new life. Now, it's a humbling thing to think that apart from Christ, We are spiritually dead. We're not just morally impure or unwise. We're not just lost and making bad choices. We're not just ignorant. We are dead, the Bible tells us. We are unable to respond to the truth of God, unable to respond to God at all because of the deadness in our spirit. Let me ask you, what do dead people accomplish? Very little. Truthfully, they accomplish nothing. And the Bible continually describes our condition apart from God and His grace as dead. We're unable to accomplish anything of spiritual benefit. And so God sends His Son to live and die and conquer death so that He can give us spiritual life. 
which means you have no spiritual hope, no hope at all apart from the life-giving, regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. It all hinges there. And so every make you move toward God, you are only able to make because He has breathed resurrection life into your soul. And Peter tells us why God did that. Why did God do that? Why did God do that? He says, it's according to His great mercy. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again. So He didn't do this, and I'm sorry, this may humble you, He didn't do this because He saw something special in you. Or because there was something particularly noble in you. Or because of a certain acumen that you might have. Or a certain strength that you possess. No, 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 no. His sole purpose was not, it was not found inside of you at all. It was found inside of him. It was according to his great mercy. So the fact that God would ever give new life and hope and spiritual blessing to people like us is exhibit A for his mercy. It's his mercy that it's, that's at work. Not our worthiness. Not our acceptability, but his mercy. And by what means does this mercy do its work? By what power does this mercy affect us? By the power of the resurrection of Jesus. That's what the text says. D. Edmund Hebert says in his commentary on First Peter, he writes, The resurrection is the valid foundation for all of God's saving work. You are raised to new life. The new life that you experience when you come to faith in Christ, all of that happens by the power of the resurrection. So the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave gives new life to your spiritual deadness. Think about that. Consider that afresh this morning. Apart from that resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, we would be dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins and therefore without hope, any hope at all. You know, Easter, Easter's in about eight weeks. But Easter Sunday, every Sunday is Easter Sunday to those of you with hope. Because all our hopes, our living hope, the text names it, is tied into the resurrection of Christ. Why do we gather on Sunday? Because of the resurrection of Christ. Where is all of our hope lie? In the resurrection of Christ. Are we foolish and foolhardy and and people to be pitied if the resurrection of Christ did not happen? Yes, we are. It all hinges on the resurrection of Christ. So that's what happened. That's salvation past. Our hope is anchored in Christ rising from the grave, and God then extended that resurrection power to our hearts, causing us to be born again. So if you've trusted in Christ alone, you can look back and you can say, man, that's what's happened to me. But this, this passage isn't just praising what happened, it's also hoping for and praising what will happen. What will happen? Look at verses 4 and 5. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. What does all that mean? It means God has put a way for you a spiritual trust fund that nothing can touch, that no one can get to, that is 100% secure. You know, you may not be rich right now, 
You may, you may not be rich in friends. You may not be rich in experiences. You may not be rich in wealth or in influence. But you are marching toward an unbelievable, incalculable wealth. You are marching toward riches in Christ Jesus. That's what lies ahead for you if you have trusted in Christ. This passage calls it an inheritance. And this inheritance is so rich and so wonderful that Peter can only describe it in negative terms. He can only tell us what it is not. Three adjectives there in verse 4. He says it's imperishable. So it's not subject to death or destruction. It can never perish. It is not limited in time. There's no expiration to it. It is eternal. That's your inheritance. Think about that. It's undefiled, so it can never be spoiled or corrupted or polluted. It remains free from any sin or blemish. It is, it is pure. Think about that. Unfading. Our inheritance is incapable of any kind of decay. Think about your life here. Think about your body here. Think about your possessions and, and your relationships here. They're all perishable. They are all defiled to one degree or another. Each passing day, they are fading and decaying. Not so with your heavenly inheritance. Not so with what is kept in heaven for you. Listen to me, guys. No matter what you are facing today, your life is marching toward glory, toward this inheritance that's being described here. And there is a day when the experience of that glory will absolutely overwhelm every dark thing you have ever faced or are facing right now. And then Peter said something deeper still about this inheritance. He says, not only is God keeping your inheritance, he says, God is keeping you. He's keeping you. So that when it's time to enter into your inheritance, you have been guarded and you will be ready to receive it. So what that means even more personally is this. The mercy that came to you and caused you to be saved, to be born again, be made alive to the things of God instead of dead in your trespasses and sins, it stays with you. It guards you because there is an inheritance that is kept for you. You are not guarded in this life by your own strength. You are guarded by the faithfulness of God. So many of you have little ones. Little ones by one, two years old, right? These little ones, they're, they're trying to walk. They're trying to get mobile. They're trying to kind of get their balance. They just look like little drunk people all the time, the way they just sort of wander around, right? And you're walking with them and you're holding their hands and, and, and you're trying to, to get them to understand the balance and you're trying to keep them from falling and bonking their heads on whatever it is they can bonk their heads on. And as you do that, who's holding who? They think they're holding you, but who's holding who? You're holding them. You're guarding them. You're protecting them. Yes, they're walking and they are upright, but, because, but, but it is because... You are guarding them. Folks, your future is sure because your inheritance is kept in heaven where nothing could touch it and your life is guarded so that you will persevere in faith to the end. That's the truth. 
So these believers that Peter is writing to, they need encouragement. They are suffering trials. They're feeling the pressure and sometimes fear of being exiles in this world. And so Peter is giving them vital, foundational encouragement by saying, look back, guys. Look back at what happened. What happened when Christ accomplished his work on the cross. Look what happened when the Spirit convicted you and and you were born again and brought from death to life. That's salvation past. We need to always be looking back on that, marveling at that. And then he's also encouraging them by saying, hey, look ahead. Look ahead at the salvation that awaits you, the inheritance that that you will receive in, in fullness on the last day. We need to be looking forward to that. Look ahead, guys. Look ahead. But then what about right now? That's what Peter addresses next. Because it's in the here and now that we so often ask, what the heck is going on? You've asked that, right? When, when you've lost a loved one, when, when you've faced a huge relational disappointment, when you've received a terrible diagnosis, when you've studied forever for a test and ended up failing, when you've invested heavenly, or he- heavily, I should say, in a business and it just totally fell apart, what in the world is going on? What's happening to me? I mean, I see what happened... And that's great, and I see what will ultimately happen, and that seems great too, but I can't really process what's happening right now. Well, the Bible has a word for us in the here and now. In fact, the word used for saved in the Bible is used in every tense of the Greek language, past, future, and present, which means this, we have been saved, we will be saved, and we are being saved right now. Which is why Peter says this in verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice, Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That phrase in verse 6, in this you rejoice. That's looking back at everything Peter has associated with salvation in these first five verses. The mercy of God that causes us to be born again, the inheritance that lies ahead. All of that brings rejoicing, does it not? It should. But right now, you're being grieved by trials. That's what's going on. And as a believer, we have to to ask, why? I mean, if God has done so much in salvation past to bring me from death to life, and and if he's going to do so much in salvation future, securing me and securing my place in heaven, why is he allowing so much junk to happen to me right now? Verse 7 tells us why it's happening. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that word tested, it begins to break open the meaning of what God is doing in the here and now. When Peter uses the word test, he doesn't mean exam. You're not being given a test that you somehow need to pass. When Peter says test, he's talking about what's called tempering. Not tempting, tempering. And he makes that clear. He's talking about what you do with metal when you refine it, when you purify it. So here's the extent of the metaphor. When a silversmith or a goldsmith, when they receive a metal, it's often in an ore state. And ore is not necessarily all that valuable. It's full of imperfections and all kinds of material that is unwanted and not beautiful, which is why those of you who are wearing jewelry this morning, none of you are wearing ore, 
Am I right? None of you. None of you are just kind of weighted down with a big piece of ore. Ore is not lovely. It's imperfect, and it's discolored, and it's unshapen, and you get the idea. It hasn't been worked with. It's just raw. So the metal worker adds heat. Intense heat, which liquefies the metal and boils out its imperfections so the beautiful, valuable gold and silver can reach its highest degree of strength and beauty. So apply this. When we come to Christ, we are this clunky, misshapen, unattractive piece of ore. And that ore robs us of strength and beauty and and, and usefulness. It corrupts our faith, which you know to be true because you know your faith. You know it is fickle and your witness is inconsistent and your motives are often twisted. All that is ore. It's your imperfection. It robs your faith of strength and beauty. So So there's going to be moments and there's going to be seasons where you find yourself in the furnace of God's divine activity. You you find yourself in the furnace of God's divine love. God is exposing you to intense heat. Why? To purify you. To make something out of you. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not have achieved on your own. He is a zealous, faithful redeemer. He will purify you. He will temper the genuineness of your faith. He will. He absolutely will. We're all evidences of that this morning. And when he's doing it, you got to know he really is at work. He's burning off the weakness and the pettiness and the doubt and the independence. He's making your faith more of what he wants it to be. It's said of the eastern goldsmiths that would have lived at the time of Peter's writing, it's said that the refiner would keep the metal in the furnace until he could see his face reflected in it. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And this means something hugely important for us. Hugely important. It means we need to stop calling those testing moments in our lives something other than redemptive love. Because that's what they are. When those tests and trials come, those unexpected and grieving seasons of life, we must not question God's attentiveness and His faithfulness and His power and His love because those moments are the surest signs of His love. And yes, yes, you want the the grace of relief from your trials. And yes, you want the grace of release from those tests. And there are moments when you will get that. There's lots of those moments, but there are also moments when what you actually need is the grace of refinement. You need the heat. And so here's the upshot of all that's happening in your life. The here and now, the here and now is not your moment of destination. This is your moment of preparation. In this moment, God is turning us into people that he would choose to spend eternity with. Think about that. That's what he's making in us. So grieve now. Grieve the pain and grieve the loss and grieve the weakness. Grieve the discomfort because there is a desired result. There's a result. It's praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the end of verse 7, which means this. And I actually had to look deeply at this. Sort of blew me away when I really started to understand it. It means when Christ returns or you go to meet him, 
It means that the Lord will bestow you because of the genuineness of your faith, the genuineness that he has created through refinement. He will bestow from himself praise and glory and honor to you. To you. Imagine that. Hebert, again, points out in his commentary, the faith of Peter's readers was being greeted with scoffing, rejection, and persecution. But when the Lord Jesus appears, the scene will be reversed. They will be given praise and honor and glory. God is doing all of this testing so you could share fully in the glory of the victory of your redemption, for you to stand as evidence of the power of God to radically transform a life, your life. And therefore, you share in the glory that belongs to Christ. So why do we then struggle so much with trials and testing? Why, why do we hate it so much? Because we think life is mostly associated with our own glory and not the glory that comes from Jesus Christ. We think it's about the glory of our good decisions or the glory of our comfort or the glory of our pleasure or position or the glory of our success or the glory of our acceptance and honor. And so when God challenges those self-glories through testing, we question his faithfulness, we question his goodness, we question his love, because we fail to see that his glory is the only glory worth caring anything about. Why do we hate trials? Because we love ourselves more than we love Christ and his glory. Which that brings us to the last two verses, and I'll conclude with this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And this is where the miracle of our salvation kind of shows back up. We love Jesus, and we've never seen him. Name something, anything in your life that you love, yet you have not seen. You can't. The natural man cannot explain this. It's my 18th anniversary today, so I have to talk about love. And I first met Mandy, we uh, were, actually it was two weeks before our freshman year in college, we were um, on the same scholarship program together, we were in an orientation group, and immediately I noticed her, right, because that's what guys do, and <clears throat> we're going around the, the circle, introducing ourselves, playing one of those silly icebreaker games, and I'd kind of already made buddies with this guy, Ben, and it comes around to Mandy, and she mentions that she has a boyfriend, and I look at Ben, and I go, mm why? Because I had seen her and I had already began to love her. Now, it took me like four years to actually make that happen. I'm a little slow on the uptake, but I, you know, there was something going on there. I had read her name on a list dozens of times, knowing that she was in the same program that I was going to be in. But when I saw her, something else took hold. That's why it's such a miraculous work of grace that moves in us so that we love Christ, who we do not see. We don't see him. Peter had seen him, but these believers in the northern part of Asia Minor, they had never seen him. 2,000 years removed, we have never seen him with our eyes. We've seen him in his word, and the Spirit does his work of illumination through that. But we love Christ, even though we've never seen him. It's a miraculous work of grace that leads us to believe in Christ who we do not see. And this love and this belief, it, it, it is not gloomy or shallow or foolhardy. No, 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 no. It is deep and abiding and real. It, it leads to rejoicing with joy 
Joy, not just in happy times, but joy even in the times of trial and testing. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Have you faced hardship last week? Last month, last year? Are you facing things that you never would have planned for yourself? Of course you are. What is the gospel that you are preaching to yourself then right now? Is it the gospel of a loving and zealous Redeemer who will not leave you alone until every aspect of your person has been fully refined into the image of the Lord Jesus? Is that the gospel you're preaching to yourself? Or is it a gospel of temporary glory where you judge God to the degree in which He's making your life comfortable? That gospel is not really the gospel. The gospel of Christ works its way into the heart of the believer so that in the moment of testing, we say to ourselves, you know, this too is love from the Father. To where we say with Job, though he slay me, still I will trust him. To where we say, my Lord is delivering to me exactly what my heart craves, the salvation of my soul. He has worked in my past. He has sealed my future. He is working in my present. When When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Making something beautiful out of you, something to spend eternity with, and in this momentary season, It's his love that's being expressed through the testing and the trial because you're being prepared, you're being guarded, you're being kept for something that awaits you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this encouragement. We are exiles in this world. We are people who might be prone to discouragement. We are people who are faced with many trials. Some of these trials are of our own creation, some of them just show up and hit us in the face. So God, I pray that we would look to you through them, that we would not be so obsessed with our own, our own comfort and ease and leisure, but we would be obsessed with what you're doing in us to test the genuineness of our faith, refining us like gold preparing us to receive glory and praise and honor extended from the Lord Jesus. So Lord, thank you for the salvation of our souls. Is there, if there's anyone here that doesn't know that salvation, maybe they're in the midst of suffering and pain and they don't even know how to process it, they don't know how to categorize it, God, I pray that you would use it to draw them unto yourself. That they would see the risen Christ, and they would love him. Lord, thank you for this time and this place and this people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Just one thing to announce before I um, dismiss you guys.